Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Text for this morning's message, which is entitled, Why I Am a Theonomist B. Is 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. Lauren uh, told me that uh, our service is getting kind of crowded. We were thinking about maybe starting a second service, and I thought instead of doing that, I would just launch into a series on theonomy. <laughs> It'd be a lot easier. It is, uh, this, this song we just sang is wonderful. You know, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. Uh, a lot of people get nervous when we talk about the law of God, and rightfully so. Uh, the law of God can be a ministry, as we'll see this morning, can be a ministry of death. Um, I, and I feel that myself as I embark upon this series, the whole series of the law of God. It's almost as if, it's almost as if you're in a junkyard and the law of God is the junkyard dog barking at you, you know, and, and it's there to protect. But at the same time, it's got, there's a chain connected to it and you're looking at it and there's a fear and a healthy fear we ought to have. And the, the, the limitations of the power of the law of God to condemn us are found in Christ. And so we shouldn't be afraid of the law. The, the law should not... If, if we understand the fullness of the grace of the gospel, then we should not fear the fullness of the power of the law. As a matter of fact, those work together beautifully. Because the more we look at the law of God and recognize, quite frankly, in some respects, how severe it is, the more we recognize how precious our Savior is who saves us from the condemnation. I mean, the song, again, that we just sang, Grace and Justice Join and Point to Mercy's Store. I mean, what a wonderful passage. God did not ignore his own justice when he saved us. He met his justice through his own son. The punishment for the transgression of the law that rightfully should have fallen upon us fell upon Jesus. And therefore, we've been set free, Paul says, from the law of sin and death. So I think that needs to be ever before us as we look at the law of God. Again, let us take a look at our text for this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Hear now the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray this morning that by your spirit, by your word, by your sacraments, that you would reveal to us the beauty of the full counsel of God revealed in Scripture. For, Father, we know that when we look at that, that is the means by which you've chosen to reveal yourself. That we might not, Father, be mistaken about our God that we might not be mistaken about what He has done, sending His Son to die, that we might live, and that we might not be mistaken about how we ought to live as those you have saved. So bless our study this morning. 
Help us to be wise. In Jesus' name, amen. Having finished the Gospel of Matthew, we've embarked upon that portion of the Great Commission where Jesus instructs us to teach His law. That's, That's what has led us to where we are. All things that He commanded, that portion of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. We discovered as we started going through the law, that Jesus equates the commands of God, which sometimes sounds cold and harsh, with love. When asked which is the great commandment in the law, Jesus' answer is, it is to love God and love our neighbor. To reject the law of God, at least in a certain sense, is to abandon God's definition and prescription for love. We then examine some of the reasons that James might call the law the perfect law of liberty. Why would James use that word liberty to describe the law of God? The law of God liberates us from so many things. It sets us free from legalism and manipulation. It sets us free from consequences and bondage. But most importantly, the law of God liberates us from pride and undue confidence in self. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Apostle Paul said, I looked at the law and it killed me. Spiritually, it made him aware that, that, that sin might be revealed as sin, he says. The law killed me. Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul earlier in his life thought he was a keeper of the law. But he says, you know, a veil was over my eyes. The veil is still over the eyes of the Israelites as they read the law, not realizing that he only came to realize that by the grace of God. The law of God reveals some things to us. It reveals the righteousness of God being an extension of his own nature and character. It reveals a holy and objective standard for ethics. And again, it reveals to us our need for a savior. We spoke about how the law of God has been fulfilled, but not abolished. And I think that's an important distinction for us to make as well. In the second message, we reinforce the idea that without God's law, there is no objective standard. We address the shortcomings of the idea of supposing that the leading of the Spirit is somehow at odds with being led or directed by God's law. That the spiritual man recognizes God's law as coming from God and seeks to walk in it. That's what the spiritual man does. So if if you are, in fact, led by the Spirit, one of the things that produces in us is an appreciation for the beauty of the law of God itself. The man who is led by the Spirit doesn't disdain the law of God. The man who is led by the Spirit looks at the law of God and, as we'll see in a minute, delights in the law of God. The danger of the very subjective notion of a false understanding of what it means to be led by the Spirit, and I did a sermon on that because I see so often in our culture that kind of antithetical disposition that there are people who want to obey the law and then people who are led by the Spirit as if those are two completely different things. But the very dangerous notion of this subjective idea of a false understanding of what it means to be led by the Spirit results in an ethic that is neither universal nor transcendent. In other words, it's not, it's not something that everybody is re- recognizes to be true, nor is it uh, above everybody. It can be changed based upon whoever happens to be in power at the time. This false understanding also produces an ethic where the sins of others cannot be determined. 
thus halting us from seeking to lovingly correct the erring brother, as the Bible tells us we are. Walking in the Spirit, friends, means doing what is objectively right according to the law of God, opposed to what one feels like doing or feels is right. What it means to be led by the Spirit means you look at the law of God, you look at the counsel of God, and you recognize that to be true. The Bible says the natural man can't figure that out, but the spiritual man does. He can discern these things. In our third message, we address the topic known as theonomy. Theonomy specifically addresses the extent of the application of the Old Testament civil codes to modern politics. So when you look at the law of Moses and you see this council in terms of how the nation of Israel should deal with crimes, that's the issue of theonomy. I put forth four reasons why I think theonomy is important. One, the preeminence of Christ in all areas, including politics. That Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And there is no category that that does not extend to, especially politics. Secondly, it addresses the influx of relativism in the very large arena of civil law. It's almost as if Christians want to be objective and they want to claim moral absolutes. But when it comes to civil law, all of a sudden we become political relativists. And we have some other standard other than the standard revealed to us in Scripture. Third, it is a key factor in the spreading of the gospel since it is generally civil leaders God uses to open or close doors to the preaching of the gospel. We recognize that God is a sovereign God and we recognize as good Calvinists that God is going, has predestined, but there's a means by which that takes place. And very oftentimes, more times than not, especially when you go internationally, you're praying that the leaders will stop persecuting and they'll release those who have been imprisoned because of the preaching of the gospel that the word might continue to go forth. And finally, we talked about how it reveals the justice of the gospel since there is no other arena which more clearly demonstrates the just and due penalty for sin than the civil arena. That's where we see very clearly. I mean, I think of famous trials in the last 20 years where the, the outcomes of the trials seem to be so wrong. And just how the people, you know, just were so incensed that we live in a culture where justice wasn't done. A society, friends, which loses its sense of justice will not so clearly perceive the due penalty for sin. We don't want to live in a culture where we don't think there is penalty for sin. What does that say of the gospel, which itself was a public civil execution? We ended our last message with these questions. How do we go about serving Christ in the political venue? What are the rules? What are the laws? Where are they to be found if I'm going to be a good Christian citizen? How does, another question we ask, how does the New Testament interact with the Old Testament to reveal this information to us? Now, it's this final question that I want to focus on this morning. How does the New Testament interact with the Old Testament when it comes to the Christian faith in general. You know, stepping away from this kind of very narrow argument of theonomy, just in general, how does the New Testament interact with the Old Testament? Because if we can't answer that question, the issue of theonomy will surely be overwhelming. If we can't answer that basic question, how does the New Testament interact with the Old Testament? Theonomy, talking about theonomy, might as well be something we say 
for another time. There is widespread confusion when it comes to grasping the extent that we, as New Testament, New Covenant Christians, utilize the Old Testament or Old Covenant as a means to determine, as our confession states, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Do you understand the question I'm asking? We're, we're New Testament Christians. We're New Covenant Christians. But we walk around, I think most of us walked in, I hope, with big old Bibles that had not just 27 books, but 39, uh, 39 plus 27, 66 books, right? But most of us feel a lot more comfortable in the 27 books, right, starting with the Gospels, than we do reading those old books. How do we read those things in such a way that we become Christians who take advantage of the full gospel, the full counsel that we see given to us? We seem to forget this. This might be one of those blinding flashes of the obvious. That when the Apostle Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work that the New Testament had not yet been compiled. I mean, how many of us, when we read that, we're thinking of the New, Te- New Testament hadn't been written yet. Virtually, friends, every reference given in the New Testament regarding the value of Scripture for the New Covenant, New Testament Christian, is a reference to the Old Testament. I mean, and there are a lot of them. Yet many of us, upon reading the Old Testament, are perplexed. Are we not? I mean, I, you know, I raise my hand. I, you, you start reading that. I know my wife will read it with the kids. And she'll go and she goes, okay, what's the deal with the axe handle? I mean, so she starts to asking me questions. She's like, this just seems so wild. Many, many modern day Bible teachers encourage their students to, for all intents and purposes, stay out of the Old Testament altogether. I've heard that. Why are you in that Old Testament? They argue that the Old Testament, especially that Mosaic economy, and that is the Mosaic economy, if I refer to that, is the period between the time God gave the law to Moses until the time of Christ. That's the Mosaic period. Mosaic referring to Moses. They'll say that it's simply a different era or a dispensation That has little to do with Gentile Christians. They're just saying that is not for the Gentile Christian. That's the the law of Moses. That Mosaic economy is for the Israelite. Matter of fact, many will push that even further. They'll say, you know, the the new covenant didn't really officially get started till kind of far into, you know, uh, after the death of Jesus. And they'll say that, you know, during the life of Christ, Jesus, was he born in the new covenant age or was he born under the law? The Bible says he was born under the law. So they'll go, yeah, even during the time of Christ, the four Gospels really aren't primarily for new covenant Christians. They'll argue that Hebrews, they'll argue that Peter, First and Second Peter, were really not written for new covenant Christians. They'll argue that that's all old covenant, that's mosaic economy. So some people push this to an, to an area that is really uncomfortable, quite frankly. Even those who do not take such a radical approach of dividing up the dispensations. And you understand what I mean by a dispensation? It's kind of an era. For example, the the first dispensation that you'll hear about is the age of innocence before the fall. So you have this dispensation of innocence. Then you have a dispensation of conscience. Then you have a dispensation of government. Then you have a dispensation of law. Moses is now we're on what they'd call the dispensation of grace. And then, uh, depending on their uh, millennial view, there's the 
dispensation that's the millennium, the kingdom dispensation, and then the ultimate eternal dispensation, which is heaven and so on. So it's different eras, if you will, in history. But even those who don't take such a radical approach of dividing up the dispensations find the Old Testament difficult to read. Even people who don't have that view, they'll, look, they'll read the Old Testament and they'll go, this is a really a hard read. Unfortunately, this has led to a paralysis among many Christians when it comes to the Old Testament. We have a difficult time finding applications. We may enjoy a verse here or there. I mean, there are some great verses, right? Like, I know the plans I have for you, plans of a future and a hope. Yeah, like we have that on our fridge. But in terms of looking at the whole Old Testament and in terms of how it applies to us, there's so much that we ignore. And we ignore so much of what the Apostle Paul told us to study. He said, study to show yourself approved. When he said that again, it was the Old Testament that the New Testament Christian was told to study. Friends, this shortcoming has serious implications when it comes to the issue before us, theonomy. It is the study of the Old Testament civil codes that many who generally agree regarding the continuing value of the Old Covenant message of God's character and law seemingly become dispensational in their approach. I hope that I'm, I, as, I'm, as I'm writing this and I'm saying it, I'm wondering how many people will I thin out here. You understand when I'm talking about civil codes, I'm talking about things that we vote on, things that the government is to be involved in. I mean, and, uh, we're going to talk, when we get down to the Ten Commandments eventually, <clears throat> before the rapture, we're going to talk about how the law of God applies to us personally, how, to, how, how the law of God applies to us as a church, how the law of God applies in civil, the civil arena, because we, you know, it's my conviction that the law of God is, should reign supreme in all decisions. But this particular issue that we're talking about is in the civil arena. And again, we, you know, we're not going to spend a ton of time here, a few weeks just kind of sorting this out. But what I'm saying is people who generally agree that the, the ethics found in the Old Testament in terms of my personal conduct are still valid today, many of those same people are going to go, but it's not valid when it comes to the issue of the civil codes of Moses. Do you understand kind of the issue here? I hope, hopefully you do, and if not, you can ask me during our, our Q&A our Q time. This is a really long sentence that I don't have to read over now. This, <laughs> this shortcoming has serious implications when it comes to the issue of theonomy. It is in the study of the Old Testament civil codes that many people who generally agree in the continuing ethic of the Old Testament become kind of dispensational in their approach regarding the message of the Old Testament as either, and this is a big issue for us to kind of wrestle with, either geographically or chronologically disconnected to today's Christian. In other words, the law of God, the civil law of God, was only for Israel. It didn't extend beyond the boundaries of Israel, okay, even in that period of time. Or the argument is that now that we're in the New Testament, we're in a different time frame, therefore that law doesn't apply to us. So the argument is usually one of those two things, that we're either in a different time frame of Israel or in a different geographical location of Israel. And the argument sometimes will be something like this. We read the Ten Commandments this morning, right? How does it begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right out of the house of bondage. Were you brought out of, Israel, out of Egypt? Were you brought out of the house of bondage? I've never been to Egypt. So they'll say, see, it doesn't really apply to you. Now, that's kind of more of a radical approach. They're going to go, look at you were never in Egypt. You're not an Israelite. 
So that law doesn't really apply to you. It applies to Israel. In light of this difficulty, I'd like to only present two points this morning, points I think will help in terms of expanding our appreciation of the entire Bible as a source of light and truth. What I'm about to do here in the next couple of minutes, I don't think is just will help us understand this narrow issue of theonomy. I think it will help us all in terms of appreciating the whole Bible as a source of light and truth from God. It will also help expand whether you agree or not why I find... And I, you know, by the way, you don't have to agree with theonomy. It's not, it's not an article of faith in our confession. You're, as long as you... Those four questions we ask... You know, for new members, do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? Do you believe in Jesus as your Master? And are you willing to submit to the authority of this church if you're found wanting in life or doctrine? If you say, I just don't believe in theonomy, we won't view that as an excommunicable sin. I may, but I don't think I convinced the elders. No, just kidding. But whether or not you recognize or agree with theonomy, I think it will help us approach the Bible with an appreciation of the entirety of it. Yet at the same time, hopefully you'll understand at least why I believe the Bible teaches a theonomy as the most tenable approach to ethics in the political arena. That's what I want. I want you to kind of go, well, why, why, Pastor Paul, do you think that this issue is the best understanding of how we should govern a society? And I already explained why I think it's valuable in the last message. Now, the two points are this. The continuity of the message found in the Old Testament as it folds into the New. I believe the Bible teaches continuity versus discontinuity. And in a related subject, the way the New Testament interacts with the Old Testament when it comes to law and ethics. So point number one. The first question is continuity versus discontinuity. I know it's I don't know if that's tricky, but it's just a nice little convenient way of expressing something. At the risk of oversimplification, the question is this. Does God need to repeat himself in the New Testament in order for his Old Testament instruction to be valid? Or does the Old Testament instruction continue to be valid unless God so indicates? Do you understand the question? Should we assume some sort of sweeping abrogation of the entire Old Testament? Should we only embrace those portions of the Old Testament repeated in the New Testament? It was recently pointed out to me that it wasn't the purpose of Jesus to repeat the entire Old Testament in the New Testament. Nonetheless, I think it's a fair question to ask if the New Testament teaches that we are to expunge the Old Testament, utilizing it only upon reference of the New Testament writers. You understand the question? When I get to the New Testament, do I go, the Old Testament is now out and it's only valuable to the extent that the guys writing in the New Testament tell me to go ahead and utilize it. Let me give you an example just to help you. A lot of people will say, I don't agree with them. A lot of people will say that the Sabbath, as I spoke of a few minutes ago, isn't talked of in the New Testament. The other nine commandments are there, but not the Sabbath. Therefore, the New Testament, New Covenant Christian doesn't need to keep the Sabbath. Okay, that's, the, that's kind of a logical outflow. That's kind of the application. Where, where the argument that I would make is, if God said there is a Sabbath, and le- of course I do think Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, which seems to, I don't think he's saying I'm Lord of something that no longer exists. 
nonetheless, if that's if that were true, would I say, well, unless God repeats that there's a Sabbath, there is no Sabbath. Or do I assume that there's still a Sabbath unless in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament say there is no longer a Sabbath? Do you understand the dilemma here? We must realize, friends, that the Bible essentially contains one message from a God with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17. The Bible has one basic message. The message in the Bible builds from Genesis to Revelation. But I would argue that it is really one message. Our confession beautifully expresses that we ought to have, quote, a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery of it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. My point here is there is a consenting message from Genesis to Revelation. It is the message of man's fall and God's redemption of fallen man. Really, truly, God's redemption of all creation through his only son to his own glory. That's the message of the Bible. There's one message. I mean, obviously, there's all sorts of sub-messages, right? But the message is man has fallen. He's dead in sin. And God has lovingly sent his son to redeem fallen man. You have the first Adam and you have the second Adam. And that's what the Bible is about. All of the Bible. Not just the New Testament. All of Scripture teaches that. The consenting message from Genesis to Revelation is the message of man's fall and God's redemption of fallen man. This gospel message is first revealed where? Does anybody know where the gospel first is revealed in the Bible? Yeah, Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God proclaims the eventual and inevitable crushing of Satan by the seed of the woman, that seed being Jesus. That's why two of the four Gospels start with a genealogy. One of them tracing it all the way back. All the way back to, to, to Eve and Seth. All the way to Jesus. This unfolding covenant of grace is revealed in God's promise never to judge the earth again. As he did during the time of Noah. A covenant that was signified how? What was the sign of that covenant? Right, the beautiful rainbow. Further amplification of God's glorious gospel promise is given to Abraham, to whom God promises that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul reveals that this promise to Abraham foretold of God justifying the Gentiles by faith. You understand what I'm really briefly doing here? Is there's a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the enemy of God's people will be crushed by the seed of the woman who is Jesus. And as, as we read the Bible, we see this promise being further and further amplified. But it's the same promise. It's condensed in Genesis 3.15. And as we read the whole Bible, it's opened further and further and further. But it's not a different message. It's the same message. God would continue to utilize what we might call redemptive history of the Old Testament to reveal his plan of redemption in Christ. He would graciously hold the wayward Israelites within the boundaries of his wonderful promise by delivering detailed instructions to Moses regarding the depth of his grace and law. You see, so time's going on and there's this promise God has made. And there comes a point in history where God gives that message very clearly to Moses on the mountain and he comes down 
And Moses doesn't come down and give a different message. He doesn't give something else. It's a further amplification of the same message. The law of God was given in detail from Exodus through Deuteronomy. We see it all in there, as was the Levitical system. What was the Levitical system? What was that? What were the Levites? They were the priests, right? In this priesthood, we saw sacrifices, cleansing ordinances, temple rituals, all designed to instruct us regarding God's singular plan of redemption through our high priest, Jesus. It's one message, friends. Paul labors to point out that the law, this Levitical system given to Moses, again, what we might call the Mosaic economy, was not against the promises given to Abraham. In other words, God made this wonderful promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Galatians 3, 18, which was merely a fuller expression of the promise already made directly after the fall, given actually to the serpent. And all the Mosaic economy did was keep us, as the Apostle Paul said, under guard until Christ would come. What does that mean? Well, in short, the prophets, priests, and kings, especially David, of whom it was told that Christ would sit on his throne, the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament served to point to Jesus. This is why Jesus thought that the Old Testament was essentially about who? Him. Think about that Bible study on the road to Emmaus where he opened up the scriptures Really, all of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, instructing about how it was all about Him. Friends, my first point is that the promise of God, what we call the covenant of God, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, is a covenant of grace where God, through Christ, restores that which was lost in Adam. That's the message. When you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading the same story as the New Testament. You're not reading a different story. I emphasize this to overcome our natural aversion for the length and complexity of the Old Testament, an aversion which oftentimes contributes to our willingness to view the Old Testament as less significant or even insignificant. I emphasize this in order to bring to light the reasonableness of my thesis in my first point, which is only God can make laws and only God can repeal them. If I make rules at home, my children should view those rules as being in full effect when we go to the grocery store or the bank unless I so indicate. I shouldn't be required to restate all my rules, right? No running, no screaming, no fighting and throwing stuff for every venue. Nor should I be required to restate my rules every time they have a birthday, which, by the way, they ask me to. Friends, the argument for the continuity of God's message, both in law and gospel, is twofold. So you understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in the Bible, you have one message. And these covenants or these these dispensations are not compartmentalized, separate stories. One folds upon the other. One's a full expression of the other. And as we read the Old Testament, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger until Christ is born. And we recognize that all of this pointed to him. It wasn't some different message. It's the same message. Now, the argument for the continuity of God's message, both in law and gospel, I think is twofold. One, it is based upon the character and nature of God. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God, God has a, a character and he doesn't deny his character. 
Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said and he will do it. Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? Psalm 89:34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone from my lips. So we see God saying, I have made a plan. I have made a decision. I have a plan of redemption. I'm not changing it. I, have a, I, 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 I revealed that plan in seed form in Genesis 3, 3.15. And through the course of redemptive history, I'm showing you more and more and more what that plan is. But I, I don't, when Jesus comes, it's not some different plan. It's the same plan. And it's all based upon the character of God, which is, my friends, immutable or unchangeable. Compare how Paul describes the law. Compare how Paul describes the law in an ultimate sense, the words are descriptive of God. The Apostle Paul says, therefore the law in Romans 7:12, therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just and good. All right? That's how Paul describes the law. Mark 10:18, we read, no one is good but one. That is God. In 1 John 1:19, we read, God is just. In Isaiah 6:3, we read, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The same words that we see Paul using to describe the law, we see the Bible using to describe God. Certainly it can be said in a certain sense that others are good, just, and wise, but Paul's use of these words, which are so powerfully assigned to God to describe God's law, friends, is telling. Friends, God doesn't flip a coin or research legal libraries for law. His law and his justice are found no further than his own character. A second argument for the continuity. So you see, the first argument is that we recognize that this message comes from a God with whom there is no shadow or turning. It's one message, one message of redemption. And we can trust that it's one message because of the character of God himself. A second argument for the continuity is found in the New Testament itself and its continual use and recommendation for use of the Old Testament as a source for the faithful. And that brings us to our final point. The New Testament use of the Old Testament. Three times Jesus is tempted in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness. Three times he does what? Right. It is written. It is written. It is written. It is written. All references to the Old Testament. Referring to the Old Testament, Paul teaches, as I've already pointed out, all scripture is profitable for proof and correction and instruction. Peter utilizes Leviticus 11.45 when instructing his readers to turn from their former lusts with the words, be holy for I am holy. When there was only an Old Testament in existence, Jesus teaches that we are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God then amplifies his point in the very next chapter of Matthew by stating that not one jot or tittle has been abolished from the law. Paul quotes the law as a justification for his argument for tithing. In 1 Corinthians 9.8, he says, Does not the law say? Paul wasn't afraid to use the law. And he's not using the Old Testament law merely as a lesson on redemption, by the way. When the New Testament writers wanted to teach justification by faith, guess where they went? The Old Testament. Who who did Paul use to teach justification by faith? What character in the Old Testament? Abraham. Habakkuk 2, the just shall live by faith. This wasn't some new concept in the New Testament. 
So clearly, the New Testament uses the Old Testament to teach us redemption, to teach us justification by faith. But the New Testament writers also use the Old Testament to teach us how we ought to live. It's not merely restricted to the message of redemption. It's also utilized for ethics, for that which is right. Paul quotes the law as a justification for his argument for tithing. Paul delighted in the law according to the inward man, we read in Romans 7, 22. In other words, even though he saw his flesh failing at keeping it inwardly, similar to David, he delighted in it. Mike, as Mike read this morning, right? But his delight of Psalm 1, that his delight is in the law of God. James tells us to be doers of the law rather than judges of the law. I feel like that. I live in a Christian culture where the law is continually judged. Friends, we don't judge the law. The law judges us. Paul tells us that, quote, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to what? The law of God, Romans 8, 7. Again, I say all this to highlight the general positive disposition New Testament Christians are to have regarding the abiding respect of the Old Testament. Yet, at the same time, the New Testament does offer some dismissive and negative statements about the law. So let's take a quick look at those. I, I have kind of approached this more fully before, but I think it's worth looking at. Now, keep in mind my goal here for you. <clears throat> is that we all would have a better appreciation of the whole Bible. That's the goal here. I mean, if this issue of theonomy, quite frankly, almost this morning, we'll get to it more in the next week or two, is almost a secondary issue. The issue, as, I'm, as I was putting this together, was this is a problem so many Christians have. We just, we're afraid of going in that Old Testament. It's confusing. It's long. It's, it's all, there's all sorts of things we don't know how to deal with. Let's look at some of the negative statements about the law. Paul clearly didn't view himself as under the law. 1 Corinthians 9.20, Romans 6.14. We're not under the law. Paul taught that Jesus, at least in a certain context, quote, abolished the law, Ephesians 2.15. And clearly the entire epistle to the Hebrews warns against going back to the law and states this, quote, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law, Hebrews 7.12. See, should have brought that up in Q&A. A change of the law right there. Paul compares the law to a tutor and then explains what? That we're no longer under a tutor. See, you see these kind of negative statements about the law? You look at those and naturally you'd go, well, I guess that law is just not for me. It's abolished. It's gone. It's the tutor that we no longer need and so on. See, I'm trying to be my own critic here, right? Which I hopefully, when we do our dialogue and our studies, we want to find out what is the best argument against what I'm saying, not because I like to argue, but because it helps me think more clearly. Now, friends, either the writers of the New Testament are double-minded, or there is a way to understand the law, which, by the way, can refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, not merely the Ten Commandments, really can refer to the whole Old Testament, and which, by the way, the law can include not just the commandments, but the gospel. But anyways, there's a way to understand the law, which helps us to make sense of how we should read the Old Testament without violating the respect we should have for it or having it become, as Paul calls it, a ministry of death. I mean, naturally, when you look at it and you see, you know what, the law is a ministry of death. As a pastor, my, thing, my first thought is, okay, I want to stay away from that. 
The problem is I think everybody has stayed away from it so much that we don't realize that most of the time when the Bible talks about, the New Testament talks about the law, it talks about it in a positive sense, not in a negative sense. Simply put, friends, there are two aspects of the Old Testament, Old Covenant law to which these passages speak. All right? So, in, you understand, you're reading and it's the law is just, holy, and good, and then all of a sudden you're reading it's the ministry of death. And you're like, well, which is it, man? What is going on here? Yeah, you can understand. That's a, a legitimate confusion. But let me offer here that I think there are two aspects of the Old Covenant law to which these passages speak. First, and by the way, this was never an accurate way to use the Old Testament law, is to view the law as a means by which we approve ourselves before God. That was happening. The Apostle Paul was addressing that. He was basically saying it's good for you to believe in Jesus, but unless you believe in Jesus and are circumcised, you're not saved. That's why the Reformers you know, believe in sola Christus, sola fide. Okay? Sola gratia. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by Christ and circumcision. See, it's great that you believe in Jesus. These, what they, they were called Judaizers. They're going, look at it. It's great that everybody here believes in Jesus, but unless you're circumcised, things aren't right between you and God. Paul, I, I've talked about this again earlier, but the Apostle Paul rails against that. He means like, don't even do that. Don't go there. That is not a proper use of the law. So one bad use of the law is to use it as a means by which we approve ourselves before God. Jesus spoke, you know, whenever he was approached by a Pharisee who was confident in his own righteousness, Jesus would just dismantle him. Again, I've addressed this more thoroughly earlier, so I won't pursue it. But secondly, was to view the ceremonial system as still binding on Christians, this being the main point of Hebrews and the Galatians 3 passage that we just talked about. Okay, you know, you know in the Old Testament... We have the Lord's Supper and baptism. They had a lot more than that, right? They had circumcision. They had animal sacrifices. They had a very elaborate priestly system and so on. The context of the change of the law that I just read to you in Hebrews, the context where he says we need a change of the law was the context of the priesthood. I mean, you, read, you can just read Hebrews chapter 7. It's all about Melchizedek and how these priests die and Jesus, our priest, lives. He goes, you know what? We've got a different system now. We don't need human priests bringing our sacrifices to God. We have our high priest, Jesus. So you have a change of that in terms of the administration of, God, of the gospel. Many Hebrews, because of persecution and other temptations, were reinvolving themselves in the temple practices and going back to Judaism. That's what Hebrews is all about. The author of Hebrews was laboring the point that all those covenant ceremonial practices, the priests, the sacrifices, the washings, etc., were merely, quote, shadows of the good things to come. Hebrews 10.1. Friends, in short, they all pointed to Christ. All of those things pointed to Christ. What do you want? Do you want the reality or do you want the shadow? Now, one other point, which is not always easy to discern in the Old Testament, since God's covenant was restricted to one nation, were separation laws. We always hear this when the Christian faith is criticized by the world. Remember that little musical that came out with Jack Black um, on Prop 8? 
Prop, Prop 8, the musical. Anybody see that? And, you know, you got all these Christians on one side. They're at the beach, but they're in suits, you know, and they're all uptight and stuff. And then you got all the kind of cool people, you know, on the other side who are, you know, against Prop 8. And it's all about Prop, Prop Hate, you know. And, you know, they're talking about how homosexuality is a sin. And then Jack Black plays Jesus, and he walks up with a little uh, shrimp cocktail. And all the Christians are like, you know, they want that. He's like, can't have this either. Oh, yeah, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, but it also says a lot of other weird things are wrong. And then they go down, you know, the garment laws, you know, the woof and the warp and the fabrics. You know, the different types of grooming, the different agricultural laws. And you see people utilize those things as a criticism against the Christian faith. And they accuse us of being kind of selective about what we decide is going to be a law and what's not going to be a law. I understand the criticism. And one of the criticisms is because most of us as Christians kind of don't understand the way that unfolds. And I want to kind of clear that up briefly here. What we have are these separation laws with Israel. These things included diet, fabrics, grooming, etc. They were all designed to remind the Israelites that they were different from the world by which they were surrounded. By the very clothes I wore, by the very way that I would shave, by the very food I would eat, I was reminded that I'm not like them. We saw obviously this with Daniel, right? Daniel restricted his diet to continue to remind himself that he was not one of the Babylonians. It is in this context that Paul writes that Christ abolished the law, Ephesians 2.15, which I just wrote a, read a minute ago, which was designed to accept the separation between Israelites and Gentiles. If you read that Ephesians 2 passage, what that passage is talking about is that there is now one new man in Christ. There is neither Jew and there is no Gentile. We're one new man in Christ. And those rituals that were designed to separate Israel from other nations, those no longer exist because the kingdom of God is now not restricted to one nation, but it's an international kingdom. As Jesus said, all the nations of the earth. The fact that I don't eat the same kind of food that they eat in Mexico, which, by the way, I do, and plenty of it. In no way reminds me that I'm a holy person and I should be holy. That, that is something that was unique to Israel in terms of the way I dress and so on. Those things were unique to Israel in terms of them separating themselves from their surrounding nations. This also abrogated whatever laws were unique to the land and the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, there were certain rules, you know, for Dan and Ephraim and Manasseh in terms of where those tribes would be and where they'd line up and what land was there and what land wasn't there. Those things were all unique to historical Israel. So you're reading that and you're going, well, what land do I get? By the way, a misunderstanding of that leads to unending conflicts right now in the Middle East, by the way. I mean, whose land? R.J. Rushduni was interviewed on a radio show one time and I thought it was really interesting. Not to get overly political here. I'm just going to leave my political opinion out of here. But I thought it was interesting. The question was, who does Israel belong to? Pretty hot topic, right? Hot issue. Everybody's listening. He says, to Jesus. And I'll just leave it at that. Right? And he left it at that, too. I mean, I'm sure he has his own political opinions. But the point is that we recognize that it all belongs to Jesus. Now, there might be political ways that we decide who gets what. 
But the point is, we recognize in an ultimate sense, things belong to Christ. In conclusion, Christians are to assume continuity unless instructed otherwise. And when we see negative instruction regarding the law of God in the New Testament, it is either addressing a misuse of the law as a means by which men approve themselves before God, or a temptation to continue in the ceremonial or separation laws. You understand the point? The point is, when you're reading, when you're reading and you're going, I'm in the Old Testament, and you see a dietary restriction, you see a separation law, or you see something that was a unique promise to Israel in terms of land, you kind of recognize that those types of things ended with Israel. But hey, let me get to my, hopefully you get that. I mean, hopefully that's not too confusing. Ceremonial laws all pointed to Christ and therefore are no longer necessary. We don't kill lambs. Other than baptism in the Lord's Supper, which succinctly deliver the same message looking back as the ceremonial laws looking forward, since he came and separation laws are no longer necessary, since the new covenant is an international covenant, we have one nation. So I I hope I'm making this clear. What you have in the New Testament is you have an international kingdom of God, of every nation, kindred, and tongue. You have the fulfillment of all those things that pointed to Christ. We no longer need those ceremonial things. We don't look at lambs anymore. We don't look at goats anymore. We don't need a priest anymore because we have our high priest Jesus. They were all designed to teach us about Jesus. So how does this relate to theonomy? If one begins to see the way the Old Testament interacts with the New Testament, if we begin to understand the positive language the New Testament writers give to the Old and the reasons particular laws are repealed, by the way, the laws are repealed, but the principle behind the law remains. The mode is different. What, what, they, had, what they were thinking about when they killed that lamb and brought that lamb's blood into the Holy of Holies is the same thing that we're thinking about when we take and we eat and we drink, and that is... That, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. They knew they weren't saved by some blood of an animal. They knew they were saved by the promise of God. Maybe they didn't have the full expression of it as we do in the New Testament with the New Covenant. But it was not that they thought they were saved because of bulls and goats. They were saved by the promise of God to send the seed of the woman to die to defeat our enemy. It's the same message. So how does this relate to theonomy? Friends, if one begins to see the way the Old Testament interacts with the New Testament, if we begin to understand the positive language in the New Testament writers and how they give that to the Old, and the reasons particular laws are repealed, we can begin to realize that the... Now, this is a big point. The civil laws of Moses don't fall into any of those categories. I just gave you a list of categories in terms of how they're, why they're repealed. We see them in the New Testament. Jesus abolished the separation laws. Jesus abolished the ceremonial laws. We never see in the New Testament the abolishment of the civil code. That's a big point. That's a big issue with me, I have to say. The civil laws are never repealed in the New Testament. The civil laws were never designed to be a source of works righteousness. We've never, you, were, they, you were never saved by being a good citizen. The civil laws were not ceremonial. There was nothing about the civil law. The fact that, you know, certain that murder was punishable by death didn't tell me anything about Jesus except by, you know, indirectly. But if you say, you know what, kidnapping in the Old Testament was punishable by death. I don't know. You don't. That doesn't tell me anything about Jesus. The way killing a lamb tells me about Jesus. 
Friends, if you've been listening closely, that leaves only two options. One, that the civil laws of Moses were part of a separation ritual, basically tribal distinctions between Israel and the surrounding nations, which we'll address another time. Or, at some level, those civil laws are the best available wisdom given by God to man on how a nation is to be governed. This morning's message has been a presentation, more or less, of a principle. I'm just throwing a principle out. Some questions still need to be answered, and we'll get to these in the weeks to come. Were the civil laws given to Moses part of a tribal separation from Israel and their uh, attending nations? Or should they be viewed as eternally just? You understand the question? Are they just for Israel? Or is the entire world responsible to recognize the justice of God as it was revealed through Moses? And if they are eternally just, what does that mean to us in terms of any practical application or expectation in our, in our lives? And we'll get to that in the weeks to come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to recognize the glory of your law, of your justice. Help us to be wise unto it. Help us, Father, to be whole Bible Christians taking advantage of the full counsel of God, recognizing even when the Apostle Paul said that, he was referring to the Old Testament. Grant us, Father, the ability to know those things which are fulfilled in Christ and those things, Father, which extend as the principles throughout all of history that we might not be confused. And worst of all, Father, think that somehow that we can approve ourselves before you based upon our own works or ability. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.